The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, it's good to be together as we begin our series in Advent. I want to give a special welcome for all those who are watching online. Welcome to Bethlehem Baptist Church here in Moundsview, and we're glad that you could join us this Advent season. Would you all join me as we pray? Father in heaven, we're asking that you would come in power now and empower the preaching of your word. Incline our hearts to your testimonies. Open our eyes so that we would see your glory afresh or for the first time this morning. Unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us with your word so that we would love you with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength for the glory of God and for our everlasting joy. We pray that in Jesus' name this morning. Amen. One more month and you will have survived the year 2020. That doesn't feel like an accomplishment in other years, but this year it feels like we did something. As you think back on the year 2020, what will you remember? How did you feel? What stood out to you? in this year. For me, it was a year where things I never thought I would see happened. Let me just run down a brief list. A deadly virus descended upon our world so that some people would feel absolutely nothing, be entirely asymptomatic. Some people would get a little scratchy throat, and then others would potentially die or almost die. Back in March, nearly all sports leagues postponed their games indefinitely. They put the Masters golf tournament on hold. The Boston Marathon was suspended. The NBA, NHL, MLS, MLB, so that's basketball, hockey, soccer, and baseball for all you non-sports people, all suspended their games indefinitely. For the first time since 1939, we did not have an NCAA March Madness tournament. The 2020 Olympics that was supposed to take place this year in Tokyo, that, would, that is costing, still it's going to cost this much, 12 to $24 billion, affecting 11,000 athletes, is being postponed, they think, for at least a year. Wildfires burned up 27 million acres of Australia. And then we had wildfires in my home state of California and in the Pacific Northwest as well. We had the largest number of Americans ever vote in a U.S. presidential election. 161 million Americans voted this year. And it's the highest by percentage since 1900. And then who could forget in our very own Twin Cities, the protests, riots, and violence and the National Guard had to be deployed to restore order. Things we once thought, oh, it would never happen in Minnesota. That would never happen in our world. Things we thought impossible took place in 2020. And unfortunately, nearly all of those events were overwhelmingly negative and difficult and hard. This has been a hard year. Wouldn't it be nice to have some good news. And this is where Advent comes in. What is Advent? 
If you didn't grow up in the church or you grew up in the church that didn't observe an Advent season, it's the season before Christmas. And the word means coming or arrival. And it's a season where we rehearse for ourselves again the story of the incarnation, that God has come into the world through the person and work of Jesus. Advent is where the greatest and most glorious news in all of the world breaks into the darkness. It's where the best news breaks into the worst situation to bring about the greatest joy. Did you catch that? It's where the best news in all of the world breaks into the deepest, darkness, worst situation to bring about the greatest joy. And so wouldn't it be nice here in 2020 to experience a dose of joy? These next four weeks, we're going to rehearse the best story in all of the world. And Luke is a really good historian. I'm going to read Luke 1, 1 to 1, 4. And he opens his gospel like a good historian would. He says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past now, to do this, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. What's Luke doing in these early verses? He's saying, I've talked to the eyewitnesses. I've studied this event. I've heard the firsthand accounts, and now I've written it down for you. Why? So that you would have certainty in the midst of all the uncertainty of life. That you would have certainty that these things, this central event in all of human history, really took place the way that you heard that it took place. And in the midst of a year such as 2020, wouldn't it be nice to have a little bit of certainty in the midst of all the uncertainty? And yet, to understand Advent, we have to understand the context of Advent. The very last prophet prior to the birth of Christ in the Old Testament was Malachi. And the time between Malachi and the birth of Jesus was about 400 years. So just imagine, radio silence for 400 years. There's waiting and longing and anticipation. The Bible records no prophets, no messengers, no judges, no kings, no deliverers, no liberation, just silence. And yet it's in the midst of this that Jesus comes. Generation after generation told the story. There's talk of a Messiah that's coming. We're supposed to get ready for him. He's coming, he's coming. And what happened? Generation after generation after generation died without ever seeing it come to pass. They told the stories and yet silence. Hundreds of years of silence. And yet we don't do well with waiting, do we? I, I don't do well with waiting. If my Amazon order takes more than two days, I think, what's going on? What's wrong, Jeff Bezos? Two days is all you get. And yet, 
Advent is about the waiting. It's about the longing. It's about the anticipation. Part of the joy of receiving it is is part of the waiting and, and the suspense building up to it. It's a little bit like Thanksgiving dinner. Part of the joy of eating it is looking forward to getting to eat it. Or for those who are in the kitchen all day, it's, it's part of pouring out your love and time and energy and pulling out the recipes that mom and grandmother passed down over the years and then all the memories that come back as you're cooking it again. That's part of the enjoyment of when you serve that feast to your family and you partake it together. Or the presents. The part of the joy in opening them is for the kids to walk by and see them again. Oh, that one's mine. It has my name on it. I wonder what it is. That one's from mom. That one's from grandma. Part of the suspense and joy is in the longing and the anticipation, not just in the opening. And the closest parallel we have today to that is probably the 7.5 billion people eagerly awaiting a vaccine, except for the anti-vaxxers, and we'll put that aside for a moment. But the closest parallel that we have is a whole world in eager anticipation so that life can go back to normal. I can shake your hand again. I can give hugs to people without worrying Might I kill them? For some of you, you won't hold your grandchildren until you get a vaccine. And yet it's not been waiting and longing for nine or ten months. It's been 400 years of waiting for the Messiah to come. That's the context of Advent. And our passage in Luke does this. It gives us good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. Our passage reveals in its main point that nothing is impossible for God. Therefore, you and I can trust him with all of the impossibilities of our life. Nothing is impossible for God, so he's trustworthy. And we can trust him this Advent and Christmas season. And for some this morning, your faith hangs in the balance because you're wondering in a a year full of rottenness, you're asking the question, can I trust God? And is he good? And the Advent story has answers to both of those questions. So what I want to do is walk through this passage and look at three stunning statements that we get from the angel Gabriel, from God's messenger. And we're going to walk through each of the three of those. So the first one is that God gives unmerited favor to sinners. God gives unmerited favor to sinners. Look with me at verses 26 to 29. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So, the previous account, the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist from Luke 1, 5 to 25, he's linking these two stories because there's similarities and contrasts between these two stories. Because he begins by saying in the sixth month, and we're supposed to say the sixth month of what? It's not the sixth month of the year. 
It's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. It's made clear in verse 36. Look down with me at 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month. So he's linking these two stories. And let me just note at least one of the differences. In the previous story, which we didn't look at, but Luke 1, 5 to 25, angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah. But where does he meet him? He meets him in the temple. And who does he come to? He comes to an old man. Not just a man, but an elderly man. Not just any elderly man. This is a priest serving in the temple. And he appears to him. But here in this story, we get a very different setting. The angel doesn't go to the temple, but he shows up in Nazareth. Nazareth in those days was a little bit of a byword. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? John 1, 46. So this was a town of no significance. I was thinking of a good Minnesota equivalent, and I'm not going to name one because I'm going to offend someone. But I was trying to think, you know, what kind of backwoods town that no one would want to live in that I could use in that particular place? Nazareth was not a significant town. And not only did the angel go to a town of no significance, he went to a woman, not a man, a woman which would have no stature in those days. And not only a woman, but she was a young woman. She was probably 12, maybe 13. And like most people in Israel in that time, she was poor, probably a peasant. And so, one preacher calls Mary a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. That's where this story takes place. And yet Gabriel greets her with these stunning words. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. The word favor comes from the word grace here and means undeserved kindness. Martin Luther paraphrased Gabriel's greeting this way. He says, O Mary, you are blessed. You have a gracious God. No woman has ever lived on earth to whom God has shown such grace. And yet what we don't want to do is mistaken and misunderstand Gabriel's greeting because that's been done throughout the ages. He's not saying that Mary is full of grace, as if she was overflowing with grace, that she could bestow it to others. That's the mistake the Roman Catholics make. In their prayer to Mary, they say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. That's why they pray to Mary. Yet, no, what it says here is that she is the favored one. God has shown her and given her grace. Mary is not the source of grace, but she's the recipient of grace. The Bible never says that Mary was without sin, that she remained a virgin, or that she could give grace to others. Frankly, the Bible doesn't say much about Mary at all, just how she responds. Whereas in the passage about Zechariah and Elizabeth, their characters told about them how upstanding they are. And here we see God's unmerited favor, God's grace given to a nobody in the middle of nowhere. And this account clues us in that God is showing his unmerited favor to lowly sinners. Grace is given to those who do not deserve it. And that is one of the central notes of Christmas, that people living in deep darkness who did not deserve God's grace, God gives it freely to a broken people. 
We shouldn't walk away from this story thinking, Mary is great, but rather we should be thinking, look at how gracious God is. Look at how good his grace is in the lives of sinners. The Advent story this morning for us is a story of God's grace for the lowly. Jesus was born into the brokenness and misery of our world. And he came to save sinners. This is the unprecedented grace that broke into the deep darkness of our world. And it was truly, truly unprecedented. This Christmas, on this side of the cross, one of the things we need to remember is that we no longer live in deep darkness. But that grace and light has broken into the deep darkness so that all those this morning who call upon the name of the Lord can receive grace, God's grace. Not because you deserve it, not because you cleaned up and look nice, not because you have a reputation or respect of others, but it comes for the lowliest of the lowly. If you're a nobody, in the middle of nowhere, watching alone at home or here this morning, God's grace is for you. No matter how you've sinned, how far you've fallen, how far you've run away, it's not too far for the grace of God. It says Mary responded as being greatly troubled. It could be translated as being perplexed or curious. It's not every day that an angel appears and tells you that type of greeting. And so she's wondering, what does this mean and what's going to happen? And so that leads us to the second stunning statement we get from Gabriel. And it's in 30 to 33. And this statement is that God is sending the Messiah. God is sending the Messiah. Let me read 30 to 33. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Gabriel tells Mary, don't be afraid, but then he goes on to tell her something pretty frightening. You're an unwed, virgin, young woman, and you're going to give birth to a son. And not just any son, but the son of all sons. Here we get the announcement of the greatest news in all of the world. This is better than any other news that could potentially come. The birth of Jesus, the Messiah, has come. And what Gabriel does is he explains the significance of this child with seven predictions about him. And I'm going to walk through those seven very quickly for us. The first prediction is that he will be born of a virgin. It says that in verse 31. Will conceive in your womb and bear a son. This is contrasted with the prophecy of John the Baptist in Luke 1.13, where Gabriel says to Zechariah, Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. He doesn't say to Mary, you're going to bear a son for Joseph. No, he just says, you're going to conceive and bear a son. And, and, and it goes further. But it, her, 
Her virginity is mentioned twice in verse 27. They, they make a point to a virgin betrothed to a man. And the virgin's name was Mary. Second prediction, you will name him Jesus. Third prediction, he will be great. The word great is used primarily to describe God. We see that in Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and lords of lords, and the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. And so for him to use great is giving him this exalted status. And this is contrasted with John again, John 1, 15, where John is going to be great before the Lord. But this before the Lord isn't put about Jesus. Why? It's inferred. He is the Lord. Number four, he will be son of the most high. Most high is a description of God. It's essentially saying he's going to be the son of God. Now, that description, son of the most high, doesn't necessarily have to mean that he's divine. Luke 6.35 describes everyday people who trust in Jesus. He says, but love your enemies and do good and you will be sons of the most high. But here it's used in the singular, son of the most high. This individual, this child is going to have a uniquely special and intimate relationship with God the Father himself. And we'll see further what that relationship is. Number five, he will receive the throne of David. This calls to mind God's promise to David to establish his throne. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 13, Nathan the prophet is speaking for God, and he says this to David. He says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and what? I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Ever. Now, where was that fulfilled? Partially in Solomon. David wanted to build a house, wanted to build the temple for God. And he said, no, 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 you're a man with blood on your hands. Solomon's going to do it. And so Solomon was in the line of David, his son, and he built God's temple. And yet Solomon died and his kingdom ended. And so partial fulfillment and then ultimate fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus, who will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is further emphasized back in verse 27. A virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of what? David. He wants to make sure you see this. This child is going to be in the lineage of David, of King David, because he's fulfilling something. This prophecy that's been made. Number six and number seven will do together. He will reign forever and his kingdom will never end. In verse 33, we read, He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. This child is going to be unlike any other child because you can't say anything about forever about just a normal child. But here we have a prophecy, a prediction of how Jesus will establish his throne. And it's going to last forever. This is not just any old child. This is not just any old prophet. It's not just any old king. This is the Messiah in no uncertain terms. God is sending the long-awaited Messiah to break into the deep darkness of our world, to bring about light and life and to establish his kingdom. 
God is sending his Messiah. And for us, on the other side of the birth of Christ, this Advent, what's to be in our mouth? What do we confess? What do we say? Christ has come. Christ is coming again. That's the truth that transforms and changes everything about how we view this year. Christ has come. We have an eternal hope. We saw it throughout 1 Peter. You've been given an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and never fading. Everything that you've experienced this year is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory so that heaven will be that much more sweet. And even here and now, We saw in Habakkuk, we're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing because Christ is coming. There's joy, anticipation, longing, and suspense. Oh, he's coming. He's coming. And then Mary responds, how will this be since I am a virgin? And this leads us to Gabriel's third stunning statement, that nothing is impossible for God. It's explicit in verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. I'm going to read 34 to 38. Follow along. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. What do we see here? We see that Mary understands basic biology. She understands that this prophecy is not about after she gets married, But she says, wait, 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 how will this be? She says very literally, instead of it's since I'm a virgin, it's actually, I have not known a man. And she means that sexually. At this point, she was betrothed, like an engagement. The bride price was paid. The contract, in a sense, was established. But they didn't live together, and they didn't sleep together. And so she's saying, how is this even possible? Because this is impossible for me to give birth. It's a different question, actually, than Zechariah brings in Luke 18. Zechariah says to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. He's doubting what the angel has said, and he gets a rebuke. He's silent until the birth of this child. Nine months of silence for not believing. And yet, Mary doesn't get a rebuke. She's saying, How's this possible? She wants to know. She wants to understand. And yet Gabriel says the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. What Gabriel conveys there is that Mary's pregnancy is the result of divine action. Mary's pregnancy is of God. Where it says the Holy Spirit will come upon you, it shows up seven times in Luke Acts. It has no sexual connotation. And so while we want explanation, like help me understand the mechanics of this, We don't get explanation, but what Gabriel gives us is confirmation. He says, this child truly will be born of God and of you. 
of flesh and spirit. He will be holy, set apart, and he will be the son of God. And, and, and just to put an exclamation mark on it for Mary, lest she might doubt, he says, your relative Elizabeth, who's hidden herself away, who hasn't told anybody, she's nearing the end of the second trimester. She's pregnant. And so Gabriel gives this stunning statement that captures the spirit of this entire account. For nothing will be impossible with God. That's what Christmas, that's what Advent reminds us. Nothing is impossible with God. There's all sorts of things that we thought once were impossible that have become, that have come to pass. And we have all sorts of other impossibilities in our life that feel so overwhelming that we can't think about it. Because what if God never answers those prayers? They feel impossible. We've put them in the category where we don't even pray about those things anymore. And yet, here, in Gabriel's statement, he says, nothing is impossible with God. He's referencing the barren birth that will take place in Elizabeth, but he's referencing all of it. God is sending Jesus, the Messiah, to break into the deep darkness of our world, to make all that is impossible possible. A barren birth it's going to take place. A virgin birth, it's going to take place. The long-awaited Messiah, God incarnate himself, possible. Forgiveness of sins, salvation, a kingdom that will last forever and ever, possible because of Jesus. Absolutely nothing is impossible for God. And how does Mary respond? She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it, me, let it be to me according to to your word. She responds with the beautiful disposition of faith and trust. That's what we are being called to this Advent season. Let it be to me according to your word. Put your hope and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, Mary had questions. She had reservations. She had fears. What's Joseph going to think? What's my, what, what are my parents going to think? What are my friends and community going to think? She had all sorts of fears and questions and doubts, and yet she responds by faith to say, the Lord said it, so I believe it, and I'm going to walk by faith. Those are the three things we see the three stunning statements of Gabriel. And so there's three things I want us to remember this morning as we seek to apply this passage for us in the midst of our current context. First thing, remember that God came to show his grace to sinners. Remember that God came to show his grace to sinners. I remember sharing the gospel with a man who had destroyed his life. The, the day I met him was his first day to live and sleep in a homeless shelter. And he had destroyed his life through alcoholism, and he had burned all of the relational bridges in his life. He was engaged in domestic abuse and had been thrown out of his home. He had squandered all of his money. He told me about the cars that he owned prior to this. And here he is about to sleep his very first night in a homeless shelter. And what was so apparent on his face and in his words is that he felt like he was too far gone. I've ruined it all. 
I've destroyed my life. I'm too far gone. He was out of the reach of redemption. He had done too many bad things. He had hurt too many people along the way. And yet there was something that this man didn't know. What this man didn't know is that the light had broken into the deep darkness of our world and into our lives. This Christmas story where unmerited grace goes into a nothing town to a nobody is a reminder that God's unmerited grace is for people exactly like that man and exactly like each one of us this morning. Whatever you may be feeling, you may not be homeless. You may be watching from the comfort of your home, but my guess is that there's brokenness and heartache and pain and suffering that you've experienced in this year. And we are to remember that God's grace came for sinners. That day he received grace as a sinner and received the hope of Christ. He had hit rock bottom, and yet that's where he found Jesus. So this morning, do you feel the lowliness of your sin? I know that we have people right now, either here this morning or watching from home, maybe you don't come, maybe you're just visiting, who are battling all sorts of things. Alcoholism, adultery, people who have lost loved ones this year. You're dreading these holidays. You dreaded Thanksgiving, you're dreading Christmas because you're going to have one empty seat at the table and it's a reminder again and again that things will never be the same. We have people who are feeling the financial pinch. You're unemployed or underemployed. You never thought it would be this way. We have people with broken marriages and broken families and strained relationships, and all of your relational bridges are burning right now. Or perhaps it's just the fear and anxiety of getting sick or of dying. And yet, in the midst of the deep darkness of our world, we are to be reminded that light broke in. Jesus, the Messiah, came. And he brought light and life. He came into a broken world to mend it. He came into the deep darkness to bring his light. And so this morning, come to the foot of the cross because there's grace there for you. If you're not trusting in Jesus this morning, if you're watching from home, you've never confessed to Jesus as Lord and Savior, and you don't even know how to do that, we would say, come, come to Jesus who gives grace. Advent is where we confess that Christ has come and Christ is coming again. The second thing to remember, remember that the Messiah has come. Sam prayed earlier in this service that Romans tells us that this creation has been subjected to futility. It's under bondage to corruption. It's groaning together in the pains of childbirth, and we've seen it all that much more acutely in this year, 2020. We got a glimpse of the pervasive brokenness of our world, and yet there is a greater, more deadly disease at work in our world, is there not? Ever since Genesis 3, we have been battling an even greater global pandemic. The death rate is 100%, not 1%, 100%. The lasting effects reach into eternity. It destroys lives and relationships and families and individuals. It manifests in all of our interactions with others. No one is asymptomatic. It wreaks havoc on our lives. And this great global pandemic is sin. 
And yet the good news that we get to remember and rehearse these next four weeks is this, that the good news has come, that God has come to bring his vaccine for our sin-sick world, and his name is what? Jesus, wonderful counselor, almighty God, prince of peace, everlasting father. He's come. He's come to bring healing and hope to a sin-sick world. And we can receive him afresh and long for his coming again. It's where we confess that Christ has come. He's coming again. Third thing, remember that nothing is impossible for God. Luke 18, 27 says, what's impossible with man is possible with God. And what Advent reminds us is that all of the impossibilities can take place because of Jesus. And what's the impossible that came to pass? Forgiveness of sins, salvation, reconciliation with God, life everlasting, being with Jesus forever and ever. In a world without hope, you can have hope. With God, the impossible becomes possible in the incarnation of Christ. So is there anything in your life this morning that feels utterly impossible? Impossible to be happy. Impossible to endure the suffering that you're experiencing. Impossible for your sins to be forgiven. Impossible for your family to be restored. Impossible for that wayward child to ever turn back or that wayward parent or relative. Impossible to experience joy again after the loss of that loved one. Impossible to experience physical wholeness once again. And yet, Advent is a reminder that God makes the impossible possible because he sent his son, Jesus, to come into this world, that light would shine into the midst of our deep darkness so that we could do what in the midst of this Advent season? We can trust him. We can trust him. He is trustworthy. And so this Christmas, prepare your hearts to trust and receive the Messiah who's come. Christ has come. He's coming again. Father, let these truths sink deep so that they transform how we think and feel and speak and then let them overflow on our lips to a world in need. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.